to Femme on TV for my very second, my very second episode. I actually feel like, oh God, I've gone off track. I've gone chaotic already. So for episode two. <laughs> uh, it's our charm. It's our yeah, charm. Thanks. Thanks. We'll be talking about Dickinson season two. So we've just done Dickinson season one. And the reason I say it doesn't feel like it's mine is because Femme on TV would not exist without Ada. You are my Dickinson co-host as far as I'm concerned. Talking about Dickinson, it's not my show, it's our show. We literally just said before I hit record, if it wasn't for Ada, Dickinson had been on my radar and I'd been like, oh yeah, I'll get around to watching it. And I, like, it was just never going to happen. You know, or I would have watched it, you know, like 10 years in the future. But Ada was talking about it and I was like, okay, I have to go and watch it. So this specific Femme on TV and Dickinson review stuff would not exist without you, Ada. So you are co-host of this. <laughs> I am honored um, and delighted. I think Dickinson is such a timely show, uh, especially given some of the things that are happening in the world. I just think, I don't know, I think it's a lot deeper. You know, it occurred to me when we were talking about She-Hulk, one of the things I was like, I'm getting off track already, but I was like, not quite sure what one of the, what was bothering me so much about it and rewatching season two, it hit me. Dickinson packs so much in to every 30 minute episode. Every 30 minute episode is doing so much work to tell so many stories and just, I don't, I think that is pretty singular and and not all TV is doing that. Um, so and they do it so well. They do it so well and it's short seasons. It's only 10 episodes, season two. Um, and I think season two is when it really hits its stride as, as we'll know from the first, uh, first film on TV episode loved season one it just it completely blew me away but I think season two becomes so much more complex in both its storytelling and its characters and some of what you know we would consider some of the side and background characters and it has it it's refined much more what it wants to say and how it says it and I think that's for me what makes it extraordinary so watching it the second time there are things that I did notice the first time, but I didn't pay as much attention to. And now watching it the second time, it's there's so many things going on that all leads to the wider story and, and, and weaves together. And then I've only watched a little bit of season three that in then impacts season three that I think is just really intelligent, storytelling and, and hopefully we said this in the first episode it treats its audience with intelligence as well and I think that's really mm. fantastic I'm curious what are what's an example of one of those things that's hitting you the second time around especially hard um it's just little things it's things like the so Mrs. Dickinson, the dissatisfaction with her life and her relationship with Mr. Dickinson, it's obviously, you know, all of the stuff about uh, being a free black person. Um, it's, you know, it's the the inkling of war, of civil war. It's the, I mean, this season very much focuses on women being unhappy or pushing against the boundaries in their world and it's just sort of there's so many 
there's so much on the surface that's that it's like this is the story we're telling these women are unhappy but it's smaller things they'll do in the background that continues to tell that story that could be ignored it could go the words are saying that they're unhappy but actually with the actors are getting mm. to do that constantly in every single scene that they're doing even if this you know they're not the main focus of the scene and I think that's what I really enjoy um you know and it's things like well let's just get into it <laughs> I don't want this to be a real what? monologue about um <laughs> about uh about Dickinson season two so we had a quick discussion beforehand about the sort of things that we wanted to talk about. And I think the first thing we've got to start talking about, which we, which we you know, sort of dived into already, is the themes of season two, which I, for me personally, I think come along a lot, come through a lot stronger than they did in season one. What are some of the, the main themes that really stood out for you? Um, in, a, in addition to everything that you mentioned, I've been really... Um... I've been really tuned in on this rewatch to the power of the free press, the power of the newspaper, the power of owning a press um, and, and, and getting both sides of it, right? We've got like the big Springfield Republican, um, Mr. Dickinson investing in kind of the man's paper aspect. And then that whole like power dynamic with whether he's gonna print Emily's poems and that she needs him or doesn't need him. But then we've got the like free press hidden in the barn that Austin invests in for Henry's movement. And the um, and the powerful, often deadly implications of printing things that are against um, against the oppressors, against the, the mainstream. I, I think that through line has just really been a highlight for me um, on this rewatch. Also themes of myopia have been coming through. Like we start off with Emily going to the eye doctor and they talk about the myopia and there's this whole through line of like vision, sight, um, <laughs> the ridiculous like hysterical women who, women who write too much, of course you can't see, but then like the sort of coming in on the myopia of the like myopic vision of some of the characters and um, like uh, like maybe Mr. Dickens myopic focus on his son being a failure because he's living a different life than he would have him live. And Emily's bisexuality is something that I've really, really been thinking about a lot. Um, I read this, I can't think of what it was called, but there was an article recently, or maybe it was a podcast that was talking about how um, in the United States currently bisexual people have some of the worst health outcomes um, in the LGBTQA community because bisexuality is such a like joke to so many people. It's like, oh, well you either have involved or you don't exist or like it's a phase, whatever, whatever. And so I've really been kind of noticing in season two how highlighted, um, like for Sue, Sue has always been in love with Emily. She's she's very like clear about, oh, well, you know, I'm sleeping with men because I don't care about them. It's about you. But for Emily, it's very clearly like a developing bisexuality. And I think that's pretty powerful story to be telling. Yeah, definitely. I, yeah. I've just realized that we should, because I was about to dive in straight into about the bisexuality there, but we should, I should probably do a quick outline of what happens this season. <laughs> I mean, I assume everybody listening. Oh, yeah. Let's, uh, let's give a synopsis. Yeah. <laughs> I 
and I'll try and do a good one, not a uh, classic career rambling one. Um, so the season focuses right. on <laughs> on uh, what's happened. So Austin and um, Sue have gotten married, and it's so it's after that. So they got married at the end of season one, and it's about how those relationships are developing. Um, Emily you know has a desire it well is struggling with becoming famous whether she wants to become famous or not who she mm-hmm. wants to see her poems about her changing relationship with Sue Sue is struggling with the trauma of a miscarriage um and not being able to talk to Austin her husband about it uh Vinny is just being a fucking queen uh, the entire season, Vinny is my hero, um, and and then we've got obviously the Dickinson parents who have let's say some marriage problems. Uh, elder Emily Dickinson is not fe- feeling her place isn't as appreciated as much, but she has a newfound respect for all of her children. I think it's something I really enjoyed in this season: mm. her closeness with their children, and it's just how everybody is negotiating their new place in the world we've got a subplot with henry um publishing his paper like obviously being like hey slavery is bad the way you treat black people is bad let's not do it anymore um and then we've all got another subplot that's weaved in around the brewing civil war so there's a lot going on in 10 episodes. I'm sure I've missed something off. What else have I missed? Um, that's Well, we have Austin. Austin in his personal life might be going down the hill, but he's a budding abolitionist investing mm. in the free black press. And, um, and really argue, I think Austin is, Austin's subplot is one of the most interesting aspects of the show. He's dealing with some pretty huge um, failures, but also really, um, really working to find meaning and purpose and like having this whole saga around finding meaning and finding love. And he has all this love to give, but the people he wants to give it to don't necessarily want it or see it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I love Austin in this in this series. I definitely appreciated him more on the second watch than I did in the first because it's so easy to get caught up in Emily and Sue and their relationship and I took a bit more time rather than binge watching it this time around because I was just like oh my god this show is amazing I was constantly watching it um, <laughs> so I took a bit more time to watch it you know sort of like one a day take my time really think about what's happening how it's all weaving together and I just find Austin absolutely fascinating you know in in my first watch of of season two because I've always liked him as a character and I think the actor's utterly charming and gets it like one of my one of my favorite things I'm such a broken record is competency and an actor who knows what they're doing and why they're doing it and gets the character and comes and delivers it I think that's absolutely fantastic and I think he does that but there's just something very um relatable about what Austin's going through and about trying to find your place in the world and exactly what you said like he's he does have so much love to give and it's often misplaced and that's what leads to so much of his unhappiness that you know in season one he's so obsessed Mm -hmm. with Sue so obsessed with her and you know in in 
Sue's rival as such, they don't do it that, is Jane. And you just think, oh, you and Jane would have just, you know, you would have like just been happy, just happy. And we could begin, we begin to see how perfect that would be yeah. um, in season two. Yeah, exactly. And just, you know, and that what he wants to be fulfilled with is not what is expected of him in society. I think, you know, when we when he's having the mm. conversation with his dad about, well, you came into the business because you're my son. Austin doesn't want that. He wants to be in the business of his own hard work, of, you know, his own intelligence and and all of that sort of stuff. And and that is really heartbreaking. You know, he just all he wants to do is somebody to appreciate him for who he is. It's the same from season one when it's about the poem. And he has to write the poem and then it's terrible and he's like of course it's going to be terrible I'm not a poet but nobody listens to him nobody is listening to him and what he's saying and I feel like that in his whole character arc in this season is nobody is listening to what he is saying Mm. which is you know very clever considering all the women also say nobody is listening to what I'm saying and what I want that is absolutely a theme of this that women are not being heard nobody is listening to them and I think it's a really interesting thing to do the same with Austin. You know, this, Who's supposedly a, becoming a patriarch, supposedly he's yeah. like the head of a household now. It's such a juxtaposition and role in reality. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Dickinson is a feminist text, right? And so it's really interesting that they take the time to include actual multiple male characters in what is a feminist text. Mm. And speaking of feminists, I think one of my favorite moments is when the Samples, the editor of the Springfield Republican, is running away from Emily Dickinson in the back of a carriage and yelling, I'm a feminist. <laughs> it's, it's so... After, after berating her and telling her that she needs him and who would she possibly be without him. I think that that really highlights that. <laughs> Yeah, and he he thinks he's a feminist because he highlights women's work. That's not what being a feminist is, mate. Like you're you are just surface. Well, he's just doing. I mean, because I hate Sam so much. I hate him. Oh my goodness, he's vile. As his wife said, he's not doing anything unless he gets something out of it. Exactly, and that's why you know he's like, okay, there's you know he's a shrewd businessman, right? He's like, women want to be heard. How can I do that? But he's doing it for himself. He's not doing it for women. For women's rights or a feminist movement at all there's no interest in that um yeah they pack a lot in <laughs> he's probably got the flattest character arc of the season in my mm. in my humble opinion because he just pretty much stays the same and remains a foil for for everybody else in his shrewd pseudo-feminist bullshit um who is your favorite? What are what's your favorite favorite character arc? Is it is it Austin? I think it is probably Austin. Yeah, I think it's I think it's the most interesting. I think the first time round it was Sue because I feel like she has such a character shift in season two, where she is compartmentalizing everything. And because she couldn't control what happened to her own body and with the miscarriage, um, it's she will control 
everything else. And because she can't control her feelings for Emily or Emily's feelings for her, it's about manipulating everybody else around her and putting a, a front up, which is, you know, which takes nine episodes to come down. It's not until mm-hmm. she meets with Sam's wife and who said she had a miscarriage, which Sam lies to people about, which is very interesting as a feminist. He he lies uh-huh. to people about why she's unwell. Um, that that Sue finally becomes sort of more of the Sue that we remember from the first season. And I found that absolutely fascinating that that she suddenly becomes a very cold character in season two and and you know, a jealous character. She's jealous of the of the attention Sam shows Emily, which I think is very obvious. Even though she's pushing it on her. Yeah, absolutely. Which, you know, is absolutely fascinating. Which, which question for you, do you think that at the very beginning, so when we first meet Sam, do you think Sue and Sam are having an affair then or do you think it comes on later? I think that I absolutely think it's happening. I think that's that's how she leverages Sam's interest in Emily. Mm. Um, and the toward the end when when Emily's like, Austin, I have something to tell you. It's so scandalous. And he's like, oh, yeah, I've known for weeks that they're doing it. And then mm. we have that moment in the opera box where he's like, yeah, go home with whoever you want. Go live your life. I don't care. So that I don't know. I, I really feel like the whole reason Sam Bowles is there at the salons in Amherst is because Sue is his, is that, uh, that woman he's choosing, chosen to get with in Amherst. Yeah. Like his, like his wife says, right. If he's spending time there, because mm-hmm. there's a woman there, of course. So yeah, that's what I, I thought on my first watch that maybe it started a bit after that, that maybe it was mm-hmm. sort of like an old friends thing and it started a bit after that because he was just there all the time but on the second watch I feel like they actually make it quite obvious that this has been going on for a long while and that it is absolutely Sue's way of wielding power but then Sue regrets that because he starts telling his slimy charms on Emily and Emily likes Mm -hmm. it you know we see that at the opera which is one of my favorite episodes of um of how Sue's looking across and she's watching them yeah and watching them and jealous and Sam looks across at her so when Emily grabs his hand that's when he goes absolutely bonkers he treats her like such shit I want to punch him so much in that scene um and you know it's like yeah there's (laughs) Sue is overestimated what control she has in this situation um yeah, and that's all highlighted in things as well. Like everybody's so clever, you know, in costume design in terms of the opera episode where the opera singer's wearing a gold dress like Sue does and mm. what the opera's about and all of that sort of stuff. So, yeah, I think this time watching it a bit slower, I was able to be like, no, nah, they were banging long before. <laughs> long before. How about you? What's your, who's your, who's got your favourite character up? I think... Emily's character remains largely, she has some growth, but she remains largely the same. She's still pretty self-serving. She's still, she's still got that like uh, tortured, yes, spoiled genius vibe. Um, I think I really, 
Lavinia enchants me and I really like her arc, but I think my my favorite story arc and the arc that I wish we got more of in the show is Hattie, freelance oh. writer, made seamstress. Um like I I Oh my god, I love hers her was my so favorite much. in that I in that I wanted more. Um like she's I wanted to like hear in juxtaposition to Emily's poem being on the front page of the Springfield Republic. And I wish somebody had read one of the articles out loud that she published in Henry's newspaper or, um, I don't know, hi- kind of highlighted a little bit more. Cause every, I think every episode she, and she's, she's never rarely the main focus of a scene, but every, every scene that she's in, I just want to know more. Yeah, absolutely. I love her. And, and um, so it's it's AO. Oh God, I'm gonna I'm terrible with doing this, by the way. So it's it's AO Idibri, isn't it? AO Idibri. Um mm-hmm. and she I believe she's a staff writer as well on Dickinson. And you can like you can tell, like she like she gets the comedy beat, she gets what she's doing in every other scene. I don't know if you've seen the bear, but she's in the bear and she is my favorite thing in, I haven't in that show she is at just like absolutely I was just completely in love with her as an actor I was just like she is unbelievable just completely blew me away but she's just she's the baron I have to watch that the bear so it's the bear it's about it's like a a guy goes back to his his brother commits suicide and he goes back to his restaurant and she gets hired as a sous chef um she's just absolutely <laughs> okay she's just absolutely fantastic in it and she just has some of the best lines like you know you talked about how um she's like why is this being written this is just some white girl shit fantastic like and I love that they get to say that in the show that's about Emily Dickinson it must be like just go mm-hmm. you know I love that when she's doing the seance so of, of course they go to the black woman who's a medium to do the seance. I'm like, oh, that's so like, I love what they're doing with this show. It's so clever. And, and, they do, and again, Emily Dickinson doesn't take no as an answer. Yeah. Because at first she's like, no, I don't want to be here. <laughs> and then she's like, I'll pay you. And she's like, yeah, cool. And then after Emily's still talking about it, she's like, no, what are you, like, that was insane shit. What are you doing? Like, she's, and she's just not putting up with any of it. And she gets one of the most poignant moments for me in the season is at the very end in the last episode when she goes to the barn for the printing press and it's not there you know because Henry's gone because he's worried about what's going to happen and of course she's being silenced and even she doesn't get to have Mm -hmm. that decision about that you know Henry is oppressed of course he is but she's even more oppressed than he is because he's just packed up and left and she's still there and so she's you know where is she left at the end of that and it's and I love that this show takes a moment to do that and show that to you because that very short scene doesn't need to be in this show and it wouldn't be in lesser shows. But this one goes, this has an impact on everybody and on a show that's about women, mostly about white women, we need to show the impacts, you know, intersectional feminism, everyone. We need to show <laughs> the impact on less privileged women. Hmm. Mm. sorry that turned into a rant when you were talking about your favorite character arc. apologies no I'm glad I'm glad you went there um and 
that that was well put beautifully beautifully characterized um yeah her arc is my favorite close second probably Lavinia yeah <laughs> I love that so who just much. continues continues getting more radical and more just like strong stronger more strong stronger and she's not threatened by the women that's what I love mm-hmm. like you know so she she's doing her thing she's still doing her art and then ship comes in is a boarder in the house because the, the Dickinsons don't have any money bullshit um don't have any money for your lavish lifestyle to do whatever you want is what you actually mean um and so they start up a relationship so how do you where do you get the money to invest in a newspaper without money right I know such bullshit um uh, he so he, ship comes in yeah so he comes in he wants to he wants a good traditional girl who's going to be a wife and all of that sort of stuff and Vinny's like well that's clearly not me and he continues to push it and grinds her down because that's what happens to women um so they start up a relationship she although is very much in charge of that relationship is constantly disappointed in him um is constantly like way more intelligent than him <laughs> Um, and is not just having any of his stuff when he talks about biological differences between men and women and all of that sort of shit. And he talks about a previous love affair with a with a woman called Lola. And rather than of the spider dance of the spider dance, and rather than being jealous or intimidated, she Vinny's just like she sounds amazing. She's almost in love with Lola, like. She stepped out there, to become her. Yeah, I think if Lola was there, like Vinny would be like having a relationship, sexual relationship with her. And I love that, that she's not, you know, she's not intimidated by anybody. She supports other women, like unconditionally. She supports Emily, mm-hmm. even though she's like, Emily's not the only interesting one. I am also very interesting. Um, and I am also a bit weird. You are, Vinny. Continue to be weird because I love you so much. Mm-hmm. Um, but your freak could fly. Absolutely. And uh, and she calls stuff out, you know, they're at church and she's like, that's a sexist sermon. They're, they're, you know, she's doing this thing. She's like, I will not be put in that box. And I just, she's just so wonderful. I think she should just be all, all to be our feminist icon. Mm. I'd watch a show about her and Hattie if they teamed oh up. Like a... <laughs> I'm so upset. I don't know anything. Done. <laughs> um, fanfic, anybody? <laughs> um, <laughs> so, speaking of which, do you have a favorite episode? Yes, sorry. Uh, this is really, this has gone in classic, really chaotic. And I'm so pleased that you are my there. co-host. Um, I, unsurprisingly, I love the uh, opera episode, um, oh. which is, I can't remember what number it is. Now, let me quickly check my notes. Um, oh, it's, um, do you mean season episode six, Split the Lark? Split, yeah, that's the one. Thank you. Because I think it, really propels a lot of what happens in the rest of the season forward mm. um so and i and i like that it it forces all the characters into one space so that so it takes place at the opera and nowhere else it doesn't go into any other location so the dickson's go to an opera oh. 
Emily's got a crush on Sam, who's going to publish her poem. Um, Sue forces them together to go up into his box. He he is he freaks out. Freaks out. He's incredibly cruel to her because Emily, in the season before, has written a letter to Sam's wife because Sue at his suggestion. Yes. Yeah. Um, and it's classic Emily, like it's passionate and over the top and, and all of that sort of stuff that you expect from her. And he is angry about it, basically, because he's like, oh, now my wife knows I'm having an affair. Um, funny enough, not with Emily, though. And he blames her, classic, switches it. So it's all her fault and not his fault. Um, Gaslighting. Mm-hmm. And then sort of that comes to a head he leaves the box Emily's upset she uses his press pass to go backstage well before that we have a wonderful moment where where Emily imagines Sue is on the stage singing her poem to her I know it's amazing <laughs> absolutely amazing and then Emily goes backstage to meet the main opera singer Adelaide and we start to see the fight within Emily about whether she wants to be famous or not who are her poems for who is her work for um and as somebody who is not a poet or a writer or doesn't really have anything out on that I've never struggled with that but I get it like I feel like you know there are some things in your life that you want to share with the world but also feel incredibly private how do you negotiate that and I think it just really mm moves along what happens in the rest of the series and we see some key things with as you with you pointed out with um uh sue and austin we start to see emily's parents of trying to their relationships of coming a bit more together and we get some fantastic Vinny of her being absolutely passionate about the opera and she says it's something she knows about and she's so excited and she's geeking out about it. It's absolutely adorable and ship not caring. <laughs> and I'm like, you're too good for and him. she Julie. works so hard. She works so hard to bring him up to her level. Yep, <laughs> so hard. Too good for him, Vinny. So absolutely love that episode. I love the final episode. Um, I think the final episode's really, it, it ties everything together and brings it all all back which is really nice and I think the funniest episode is clearly the seance episode um it's just just it's just episode three the only ghost I ever saw which is just laugh out loud funny how about you what are your favorites um it's a it's a tie um the only I'm just the ghost I ever saw the mm-hmm. only ghost I ever saw was was my is is up there the two episodes are that one and episode seven where death comes back Wiz Khalifa is unequivocally my favorite character in Wiz Khalifa as death is Dickinson for me like I love I love Emily Dickinson I love a lot of things about the show but Wiz Khalifa as death is is it for me um and he comes back and he brings drunk dead Edgar Allan Poe who's just trying to get laid um and after we have a whole episode of Emily trying, of Emily, like the surreal kind of, it's like her existential crisis playing out in surreal terms when she becomes a bit invisible and no one can see her, but she sees kind of all the shit coming undone. She sees, she sees Sue and Sam fucking, she sees, um, 
she joins that party in the barn and gets gets a little wild and it's just I don't know but I think that that episode takes the surreal out surreal surreality I don't think that's the word takes the like just all of the surreal elements that I love about this show to the next level and Wiz Khalifa's back and I think it has one of the best soundtracks of the season however the only ghost I ever saw features Olmstead, who like landscape art artist architect and I, I I just really him and Emily's wandering through the garden talking about what it means to get lost and like the kinship between landscape architecture and poetry just totally turned me on so I think that and then like the the like Mr. Dickinson being trapped in a hole and Mrs. Dickinson (laughs) going down there to like literally trap him in this discussion and then leaving him there I, I think that's fabulous um I think that Vinny like Vinny's statement about marriage being a patriarchal symbol that robs women of their autonomy is beautiful and on point um and we have a seance so that that episode just I feel like it just packs in so much goodness um all it needs is death <laughs> yeah it's such a fun episode it's so good and it really drives home that they are young people as well you know completely overcome by hormones and emotions and being irrational and, and all of that sort of stuff and I love it that it's just they <laughs> and we haven't even talked about the fact that Austin adopts the two little cousins yeah the, the little trouble twins who join the seance <laughs> yeah thanks <laughs> But even they're like, they're like, this isn't for us. See you later. They like, no, they know better. Um, I love, I love those two. I can't wait to see where, where that goes in season three. Cause then we get that beautiful moment at the end where they burn the church down and mm. Austin's like, you know what? The 1850s churches burn all the time. Come on, <laughs> yeah. girls, let's go home. And they're like, oh, okay, maybe we can live here. And there, I think there's just something that's going to blossom. and that's what I mean there's something about Austin that you know he is somewhat lost himself right he's he's been very you know he's had a very secure life and so on the so he should be able to decide whatever he wants to he should be happy and he recognizes he wants to rescue Sue right he's so Mm. desperate to rescue Sue and he can't and that doesn't happen and so then he's and trying to rescue. This is downfall, and then he's trying to rescue Jane because she's been widowed and she has a baby. When she's mm-hmm. in his office and she says to him, "Well, you're the only one I trust," he doesn't hesitate. He writes his name down as the executor of her will for her son. You know, he's so desperate to rescue someone, and then these two children come along, and at the end, like, so it's it's somewhat selfish of him that he wants to. You know, he's selfish when he decides to adopt them that's for him it's not for them although he says tries to say all the right things but at the end it's like he he actually grows because he goes maybe they just need somebody to pay attention to them maybe they just need somebody to notice them maybe they don't need to be ordered around all the time their parents are dead they're orphans you know it's and he takes a step back and sees them as actual human beings not just pawns in in the, all their lives because they're pawns for Mr. Dickinson, right? They're so he can get more money. How many people see kids as real people? Yeah, exactly, right? Exactly. It's so, you know, I think that's why he's so interesting. 
And from what I've seen of season three, I think it makes what happens in that season even more interesting. I nearly did a spoiler then. Okay. 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 But, but I kept it to myself. I think I'm gonna have to like meter out season three because I definitely season two I had initially had watched it as they came out. So there was a week break mm. in between. But then in the last three three days, I just like binge watched when I wasn't working, I, I watched the entire season two. And now you're inspiring me to like pace myself <laughs> on season three between Definitely. now and January. Do it. Um, and on, so you mentioned I'm Nobody Who Are You, episode eight. One of the, which is, which is an absolutely great episode for the reasons that you've said. Um, you know, one of the things I find so interesting in that episode is how white people celebrate compared to people right so Emily gets her poem published she becomes invisible everybody talks about her poem as if they're intellectuals um you know <laughs> like they care <laughs> yeah exactly yeah. and then you see so Henry's efforts with his paper the constellation they all gather together and they all celebrate together it's a family affair they all are excited and happy and, and it's a party and it's a party and that's, you know, and then we see Sue's party that she throws for Emily and it's cold and it's distant and it's about, all about looking proper. Um, and it's so very different. And that contrast that I just absolutely love. Mm. Whereas we've got everyone else, we've got, we've got the barn celebration. Everyone just is having a good time. I also love that Hattie is wearing the gold dress from New York that Sue is like, I I never wear the same dress twice. I I I just really love that she, she's wearing that dress for the celebration of the newspaper being published. I think that, I don't know. I think there's some costume design statement being made there. Um, Chef's kiss. (laughs) It's so good. And then we've got Emily in like her plaid robe and man slippers, just like twerking. Austin comes in is like what is happening (laughs) because that's where Austin wants to be as well like he doesn't want to be in Sue's salon so he leaves he doesn't want to be in that celebration for Emily and yeah Austin's not perfect you know he's he's trying to help Henry but his grasp of the political situation isn't really you know he's Austin's not dumb but he's got the privilege of not having to be intellectual right um and we see he is he over listens to the news that's happening in terms of upcoming civil war and stuff like that and like goes to report it back to henry and everything like that but you know austin's like i just don't i don't know where my place is so i'm gonna go outside and go somewhere where it you know it's not as much as he is supporting Henry's paper and Henry's printing and Henry's calling and and what Henry wants to do that's not the place for Austin either and he's so but he's going there and trying to find a place then it's just like and I like that I think his arc is tricky in a good way I also think it's a really interesting touch in that episode that he can see Emily and they're standing there having that conversation but everyone who comes out of the barn thinks he's just like having a breakdown and talking to himself (laughs) and I mean he kind of is having a breakdown um 
but he's also talking. I just thought that was a really, really kind of poignant moment. I love that he could see her, but nobody could r- really validate that. Yeah, and I and I love that in this season. Actually, you you brought up something that in my notes I've got and I've not talked about yet is the sibling love mm. in this season. You know, it's it shows how much more sophisticated this season is compared to the first one. And it happens quickly with sibling love. Whereas in the first one, you know, Vinny's always like, oh, well, everybody cares about Emily. There's almost a rivalry. You know, Austin's horrible to Emily because he knows she loves Soon, she loves her and all of that sort of stuff. And if this, in this season, they switch that these three siblings really love and support each other, but it doesn't feel jarring because it's written so well. You know, and we see that with the cake episode when Emily <laughs> does her cake for the fair. But we also see it when in, is it the final episode or the penultimate episode where Austin's really like, I don't know what I'm doing. It must be the final one because it's after. Oh, she yeah, the failure, the final yeah. episode. Yeah. And she and she sits there with him and she listens to him and she tells him you're not a failure. And it just makes you realize that all three of the Dickinson children like have not, you know, they're all trying to find their place in the world that even though they've had this secure, you know, what people would say like idealistic upbringing and they have, especially Emily, who's completely spoiled and gets whatever she wants, no matter what, um, you know, but they still need to find their own way and break Mm -hmm. out of the boxes that they've all been put in. I like a look of agony because it's true. Mm. That whole tea party. And then we've, and then like, I don't know, Mrs. Dickinson, the domestic goddess presiding over two perfect tea parties is such a beautiful foil to that, to that sibling love. And I, I don't know about you, but um, my brother and I pretty much up until my mid twenties, maybe early twenties, I guess, when I was living away, we, we did not get along. But then as soon as, you know, I moved out and we had kind of our own lives, he became my best friend. Um, So I found, I found that aspect of season two, pretty, very relatable uh, also. Yeah, absolutely. It's the same with my siblings. There's 10 years between me and my eldest brother. So we didn't really hang out when I was younger at all. Um, Even though like now we have all the same interests and stuff like that. And my other brother um, is two years old too like two and a half three years older than me and we played together as kids because we had to just like we were each other you know <laughs> you're at home together and then sort of as teenagers didn't hang out or not like we disliked each other because we still liked the same things and still would watch the x-files and stuff like that together on whatever night that was on but, you know he had his own life I had my own life and then we all just sort of hit our 20s and just kind of like oh yeah we actually all kind of like each other this is nice we all sort of have the same <laughs> thoughts and opinions on things. And even if we don't, we can sort of like have nice disagreements, not ones where we all hate each other. And yeah, and so def- I definitely feel that. <laughs> They're very lucky. Obviously, I know lots of other people don't get on with their siblings. So yes, very, very lucky. But yeah, again, mm-hmm. I agree. It's completely relatable. <laughs> I'm just looking at our notes for the episode. So we've covered some favorite episodes. We've talked about character arcs. We've talked about major themes of the season. What else is on your mind about season two? What else is on my mind about season two? I think... Okay, well, this isn't a question for me, really. This is a question for you, because 
I am really interested in Emily's struggle. You are a poet. Emily is a poet. In Emily's struggle between sharing her work, what fame means to her, you know, why mm. as a you know, as a poet is fame important? Um, or is it just doing it for because it's within you, it's within your soul? Is it a mixture of all of those things? Tell me, tell me about being a wonderful poet. Oh God. You know, I think I conscious, maybe unconsciously avoid that overarching storyline in this season because it's too relatable. Um, I, as a child, I'm very much going to out myself here and, and that's okay. I very much like fancied myself a young Emily Dickinson. I had this whole like, I like I from a very young age, like I knew that I could not not write poetry, not write. Like it's just in that same way that maybe it is for Emily in the show, it just kind of comes out, whether it's, you know, a stack of journals that live in obscurity in my closet or not. I can't function without having that conversation with myself on paper. I think Sam Bowles actually puts it the best. He's like, it's not a romance with me. It's a romance with yourself. That's very much what my relationship with poetry is. It's my romance with myself. Um, and so I very much had this like, you know, chi naive childhood, like, well, I'm going to, you know, die in obscurity, but I'll, I'll live forever because my poems will be, you know, they'll be famous one day. And then now as an adult, as I have started publishing work and having these conversations, it is weird. It's so fucking weird and ch challenging um, and vulnerable to like sell your art. Um, and ask a price for it and put a price on it. And also, um, I don't know, it's something that I've struggled a lot with and really, um, I don't know if I have any good answers about it. I think I'm going to keep writing it and putting it out there because it feels good. But I think if Dickinson has any like poignant lesson around fame and poetry it's that um that there has to be some agency like it has to be on my own terms if I'm putting my work out into the world and asking a price for it if I, like I think that art requires agency on the part of the artist um in order to have a, like a I don't know healthy relationship with putting it out in the world I have to have agency over how when that happens to a certain extent. Um, yeah, I don't know if that answers any questions, but it's definitely something that I grapple with and like, and feel very weird about. Um, and then there's that whole other layer of like, last year I published a book called Cunt Poems and it was like, uh, I mean, cunt is the second most taboo word in the English language. So there's that like whole I don't know. I, I'm very fortunate because my mom was like so proud of me and buying copies for her friends, but um, <laughs> like giving them away. But that's not necessarily, I, I don't know. It's something to like put that out there and be known as the person who writes erotic lesbian poems about cunts and like talks about sex and puts it out there, as you know, because you're 
you have a podcast called Hearts and Vaginas where you talk about sex. So it's like, I don't know. It is a real, a real thing to grapple with under under patriarchy. Yeah. And and that was amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that. I found that I mean, I now just want to do an episode where you just talk like that about your work and yourself. <laughs> Lovely. Like but I think in terms of trying to bring it back to Dickinson, you can tell I'm all distracted now because I love that. Um, I think this sh- the show doesn't provide any answers and it's just what you've said. You don't know that's something you've got to, you as an artist, as a creator, as a poet, need to grapple with yourself and there isn't a right answer. And I don't think the show preaches that. I feel like the show is very much like if you're a poet who wants to get your poetry in a paper cool do it if you're a poet who wants to keep your poems to yourself or for your lover or for just anything then that's also cool and it's up for you up to you as a, I don't even think it's saying it's up to you as an individual I think it's just saying it's a it's a struggle as a creator of how to share your work and what your work means to you and it it also champions a right to change your mind, right? Yes. Like, I mean, at one point, yes. at one point, Emily wants the fame. She wants to be, she wants nothing more than to be published. I mean, part, I mean, who doesn't want the thing that their father forbids? Um, but then it happens and she gets a taste of it. And it's like, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. Actually, I don't love this so much. I want to, I want to do something different. And then we have, you know, Sam Bowles being like, well, you can't do that. You're warped. You're weird. You're sick. And as a woman, I know that's where your art comes from, but you need a man because you have no power without me. Um, look how feminist I am publishing your poetry. And it's, it's so twisted. Um, and it's, I don't know, but it's, it's about, as I mean, it comes down to bodily autonomy, right? Mm. As a, as a woman, does she have, she has the right to her, her poems there's this chat book there's this amazing chat book um by Jennifer Tamayo called poems are the only real bodies and it's a book of her letters to Harriet Tubman and in the book there's a picture of her hanging a white woman or a, a perceivably white woman anyway hanging from a statue of Harriet Tubman in Harlem and it's just I don't know, this idea of poems being extensions of or the only real bodies, I find really, really uh, apt and fascinating. And it's once your work, once your art is out in the world, what the rest of the world does with it as well, isn't it? You know, it stops being yours. So the public takes ownership of it. And what does that mean as well? That's What does that mean if it's your body? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And and speaking of bodies, as somebody who has had miscarriages, I found the way they handled Sue's really interesting. We don't see the miscarriage happen, which is I'm really pleased about because again, in lesser hands, that would be a whole thing and she'd be there weeping and, and all of those sort of things. And by the way, that does happen to women. We do cry about it. But also we have to get on with our lives. And that's one of the most terrible things about having miscarriage is that, and I don't believe in this, but society tells you that you can't talk about it. I'm very, very open talking about mine. I was from the very beginning. Um, But society tells you you're not supposed to. It's supposed to be this dirty little secret. And that's what happens to Sue. And then she compartmentalizes because she can't talk to anybody about it. 
you know, we see that she and Emily aren't as close as they used to be. And also you can't share it with Emily because Emily's so bloody intense that she's not going to let you have some space to to uh, process that. She might also write it in a and poem. And self-centered. Every conversation yeah. with Emily is about Emily. About her, mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. Um, and so I find that they don't wrap it up in a neat bow. Really interesting as well, you know. She's still carrying it by the end, even though she's had some sort of catharsis and speaking to Sam's wife. She's still carrying it at the end. It's not yeah. wrapped up in a neat little bow. And her journey on being a mother or potentially being a mother or not wanting to be a mother isn't simple. It's very complex and she has a lot to to deal with. And I like that Sue is a bit of a bitch as well in the season. She's not a nice person for most of it. I love how unlikable she is. Yeah. Like Um, it's powerful. mm, Absolutely. And I also, I really, I really appreciate that you brought up miscarriages and I, I think it's cool that I'm excited to see excited. I don't know how that's, the best way to talk about a miscarriage but I now that Austin knows but they haven't talked about it I'm interested to see how that develops in season three and glad to see that it's going to be an ongoing conversation um I have also experienced a a miscarriage in college and honestly it was probably it was the best thing that could have happened in that in that moment in that time like I cannot even imagine being the mother of a nine-year-old yeah because it's because com- it's complex um, right I mean like it all leads into like abortion conversations and stuff like that because it, it's complex like you know my I say had like two confirmed third presumed because we'd had the the two earlier ones and we the first one I wasn't ready to have a baby it wasn't planned it obviously happened by accident I didn't even know that I was pregnant until I had the miscarriage um, and then I was quite unwell with it and that was horrific and I was upset about it but I wasn't you know I'm not and I know this is hard for some people to hear but it's exactly like you said I'm not sad that it happened like I'm, I'm sad that women have to go through it and and I felt that pain at the time and I suddenly started having to grapple with oh my god I was pregnant I don't even know if I want to be pregnant um, we hadn't decided at that time if we wanted any children you know so it's like a whole emotional thing I didn't know that I had to think about at that point which wasn't fantastic when you doubled over like <laughs> bleeding and in pain um, but yeah you know I, I I don't think it's something that we should shy away from and they don't in the show they spend 10 episodes 10 episodes like talking about it of it being something that happened to a character and that's exactly how it should be we see it so quickly, oh, somebody's had a miscarriage and it's over and done with. And it's not that simple, even when it's, you know, like both you and I have talked about it, it was, it's actually was an okay thing to happen in terms of where we were with our lives. It doesn't mean that it's just wrapped up in a neat little bow and we can't have mixed feelings or, you know, it doesn't mean we stop thinking about it type of stuff. You know, it's very... Oh, absolutely not. It was all I could think about for like a couple of years. Yeah. Um even if I wasn't necessarily talking to my partner about it for the, mm-hmm. that time, which I think, I think if I had been talking about it more, it would have, would have been better, but 
I think that's one of the gifts of this show is that it really, really kind of brings all of that up and shows us what happens when you don't talk about it and then talk and then they talk about it and it just keeps, I hope it keeps going in season three. Mm, me too, me too. Okay, so on that very serious note, is there anything else before we wrap up? Um, Maggie is a hero. Oh, Maggie. I mean, Mag- and... nothing would happen in this show without Maggie. Oh, my God. Nothing. <laughs> Absolutely nothing. That's, uh, that's where I'll leave it. Maggie is my hero. She's so amazing. Tells the best stories as well. Oh, my. Her story about the sailors. <laughs> so I love Maggie so much. We should just do a whole podcast on her. I keep on saying it every time we talk about something. Oh, let's do let's talk, let's do a Maggie podcast. <laughs> yeah. We can write limericks in honor yeah. of Maggie. I love it when she says when Emily's got writer's block and she's like, "Have you ever tried doing a limerick?" I love it. I was like, Maggie, I want you in my life. Too proud. <laughs> okay. I've been trying limericks as inspired by Maggie. Oh, that makes me so happy. Please share some. Please, please next tune in next time folks. yeah share yeah original one Limerick's all around <laughs> so where can people find you ada uh you can visit me online at www.aamccartney.com uh, i'm also on instagram and post fairly infrequently probably leaving twitter yeah but my website is the best place to find me Yay! So find me at Rhea Carrigan, probably leaving Twitter, but on Instagram. And of course, don't forget to check us out at Femon Show. Um, mm. And everything else will be in the show notes and our website and stuff like that. And I can't wait to talk about Dickinson season three. We've got it, it's going to be a big one. I'm very pleased. Dun, dun, dun. And we have, some, we have a special guest. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's going to be so good. Right. Thank you. That's half an hour. <laughs>